0: Welcome to A Sense of Texas. I'm Emily Coleman. We sent out our draft COVID health and safety plan last week and surveyed employees and families to hear their thoughts. This unique episode speaks to TSBVI, but it also may have insight for others wrestling with school amidst a pandemic. We hope this Q&A will answer many of your questions, and if we can't alleviate your concerns, maybe we can alleviate some confusion. We're going to reach out to Sally Freeman, director of our health center, and Daniel Wheeler, who heads up our remote learning initiatives. But before we get into those specific areas, as superintendent, it's only fair I get the big questions first. To represent the voices of our community, Lowell Bartholomew is getting in front of the mic again instead of his typical seat behind the scenes.
1: What is the current plan for the start of the school year?
0: We are starting remote for the first three weeks, and then we have the option of adding a fourth week to that. We can kind of make that decision on our own. As of now, our board of directors can decide if we get an additional four weeks of transitioning back to in-person from remote status, and we'll be posing that question to them probably later this month.
1: And if things change, how and when can that happen?
0: We take guidance from the state of Texas, obviously, the governor, the Texas Education Agency, and we work within options and choices that are sort of afforded to us. So as of right now, it's, it's kind of only that first eight-week period that we have to work with. Of course, that could change. That changes a lot. And so we're gathering data right now just to figure out what are case counts going to look like across the state, not just in Austin but in other communities what do we need in place for people to feel safe for families to feel safe sending their students and so there's lots of different factors that we have to look at to decide every step of the way whether we're going to remain remote or offer some level of in-person instruction.
1: For the staff that's not providing direct care to students? Are they going to continue working remotely?
0: We have a lot of flexibility with staff that don't have to provide direct care. In the past, our work from home policy has been pretty restricted. We hadn't allowed that very often. But as you can imagine, with coronavirus, everybody's learning how to work from home. And so I think a lot of companies are realizing that, oh, wow, a lot of our workforce can actually be effective off-site. So for those staff, they just have to work directly with their supervisors and decide, can Can I perform my essential job functions from home if I'm worried about coming in? We do know that by reducing the amount of people on campus, you reduce the risk of spread. And so there's something to be said about having essential staff on campus as needed and then being more flexible with those positions that don't have to be here in person.
1: If the worst case scenario happened, if there is a actual suspected case of COVID-19 on campus, is the staff trained and ready for that?
0: As of today, August 7th, when we're recording this, I would say we're not totally ready for that. We have some sort of outlines of what it might look like, but we are looking at later in August doing some what they call tabletop exercises. So we sit around and say, okay, in the exit program, on this day, this student develops a fever and then do some sort of play out of about what that might look like. How many people would be quarantined? Where would they go? How would we reach out to the family? And so that's something that we're we're creating right now. And, and when we have those tabletop exercises, that won't just be the management team. We're gonna pull in direct care staff and teachers and, and nurses and anybody that might be involved so that then we can say, okay, given what we wrote in our plan, this is kind of what we will do, but I imagine we'll find things that aren't gonna work. And so we're gonna have to go back and do some editing. And that's why it's a draft safety plan. Residential has done a little bit already, which is great. They've thought about, you know, how many people would be quarantined if this particular student tested positive. And so that's gonna be what we'll be working on before we bring kids back on campus. We'll be doing a lot of those kind of activities.
1: Does the school have PPE to provide? or the supplies good?
0: That's a, that's a big concern and everywhere, we started ordering PPE in April for this school year because we knew that it would be hard to get our hands on. So we have over 150 forehead thermometers already in stock that we ordered in April. And I think they showed up late June. If we had waited until June, we probably wouldn't have them. We have over 2,095 masks. We have 100 reusable masks that were donated by Austin Lighthouse. And then we have another 600 cloth masks, another 600 surgical masks. We currently have 850 face shields on campus. Those are reusable, so we could probably give one to almost anybody that wanted to have one. We have enough disinfectant wipes to get us to December, is what what I've been told, which is thousands of them. We just picked up a shipment today from TEA of 4,000 disposable adult masks, 1,000 reusable masks, and a few more thermometers. And um, we're also expecting from them later this month month like 18,000 gloves and 65 gallons of hand sanitizer. So we definitely are rounding out our PPE supplies. I think we're in really good shape with that, which is great to hear because we know we can't bring people back until we have all of that. We're looking pretty good along those lines and we'll be providing it to staff, obviously. So we know some people want to use their own masks and have their own preferences, but we'll have options for those that don't.
1: So here in outreach, there's less student contact, but much of outreach is dependent on travel and people being in the building or in-person contact. How's the new plan going to affect outreach?
0: Outreach isn't planning to do any statewide travel through at least mid-October for consultations and that kind of thing. And then, of course, we'll reassess as they go. They learned last spring how to do consultations via Zoom or online and and trainings as well. There actually aren't any in-person trainings scheduled for outreach for the entire fall at this time. So they're planning to do everything sort of in a more remote environment. And so it's for the safety of outreach to not have them out on the road, but also for our school community as they come back in from being out in other school communities that, that may have different safety protocols in place.
1: The SWOMA conference, which is every kind of October, November, that's been changed to a, is that entirely online this I year? I
0: believe it is. Yeah. They made that decision, I think, like in June, May or June.
1: Yeah. You talk to people all over the country. How are other residential schools for the blind outside of Texas? Do you know how they're handling this?
0: TSBVI is part of an organization called Council of Schools and Services for the Blind, and we have a listserv that's been very active during this time. There are a lot of different residential blind schools in the United States, and a handful of them have a population very similar to ours, which has students with various multiple disabilities, deaf-blind programs, outreach services, all of those things. So, We're all making reopening plans, every one of us, because we know that even if it's not tomorrow, at some point, we're gonna be bringing kids back into our schools. So we've been sharing with each other our plans and concerns and what's working and what's not working a lot of schools are starting the year remote like we are and then there's a lot of schools that are starting in person and so we'll be relying on each other to sort of see as we move forward through this school year what's happening oh you had a case how did you handle it what transpired so we're a pretty tight community which is great because right now it's just like the more brains you have on this problem the better
1: for employees at the school that are in, in some of the high-risk categories for the disease, what can they do to obtain a, a remote work accommodation?
0: As we shared earlier, if you're not providing direct care to students, we obviously have a lot more flexibility because you can perform your essential job duties from home. For those staff that are in a high risk or have a health concern, they definitely need to reach out to HR. There's some paperwork that they've got to, to fill out to request those reasonable accommodations. So sort of in partnership with their supervisor, they can contact HR and they'll put them in touch with the paperwork that they need to have in place.
1: So the school bring the students in from all across the state of Texas, which is the size of several states put together. What considerations are you putting into those students coming in from all across the state?
0: That's probably one of the biggest concerns I get from uh, staff is that, you know, we're bringing in kids from other communities. And what if, say, Houston has a higher case count than than Austin? At some point, can we make choices along those lines? I'll say for the first eight weeks of school, the waivers are set up now with the Department of Ed. We can sort of transition in those kids in lower case count areas than other places. At the point in time where we open up to anybody that wants to come, we have less flexibility in how we limit who comes to our campus. But because of that, we've been meeting with our local health department and sharing with them, like, this is what we do. We bring kids in. This is how we get them back and forth and how often and the frequency and the safety plans that we have in place. This time, we're just consulting with them. They're not putting any additional guidance on us in regards to transportation. Much like the School for the Deaf, we're both planning to continue to transport kids. Hopefully, with all these additional measures in place, we can mitigate the risk of that. But it's definitely, you know, I reached out to, to schools for the blind around the country and said, what are you doing about transporting kids? And and they're all doing the same thing we are. They're, they're sticking with their normal plan. We talked about the idea of keeping kids longer and not sending them back and forth as much. There was too many downfalls in that. Aside from staffing and budget impact, which is huge, there's also just the social emotional benefit of kids being with their families and the behavior spikes that can occur when they don't get to go home. All of those factors as well. And so like other residential schools, we're just sticking with our normal process, but implementing, you know, all this other stuff to hopefully keep everybody safe.
1: We sent the survey out to families. How many families said they wanted their children to come back to school.
0: At this time, 72% of those families would like to send their students back to school.
1: If these parents choose in person, but as the school year starts for any number of reasons, change that to remote, are they going to be able to do that?
0: Families get to choose every grading period what their preference is. So for us, our grading periods are nine weeks. We're asking families to decide for the first nine weeks of school when we're not 100% online if they would like to send their students to campus. And then when the next grading period starts, we'll ask them again. For the families that pick remote for the whole grading period, we're going to hold them to that because of just the planning that it is going into this. But if a family says they're going to send their kid and then when we open, they decide they don't feel safe, they can have their child stay remote. Or if they send them for a week and they decide that it didn't really feel great, they can switch to remote at any time. It's just the other way around that's tricky because of dorms and transport and that kind of thing.
1: Is the school having to have any facility upgrades?
0: Yeah. So we We have three kind of really obvious ones. One is we're putting plexiglass barriers and sort of the main reception areas where we have administrative assistance with a lot of traffic. We are upgrading our HVAC system to MERV 13 filters, which if you'd asked me six months ago what a MERV 13 was, I would have no idea. And I still can't tell you what the acronym stands for, but it's for a virus level of protection. And so we're trying to get those in place by October, we're hoping. And then the third thing that we're working on is UV light technology, which is electrostatic sprayers, which is what they were using in movie theaters and airplanes and and things like that so we can use them on our buses and maybe classrooms with kids that have more significant challenges and they can't wear masks all the time and things like that. So we're just trying to think of pretty much everything anyone has ever mentioned to me as a possible mitigation, we're putting it in place. (laughs) So there's going to be a lot of work underway before we bring the kids back onto our campus.
1: So before anything, the COVID crisis is a health crisis. So it seemed apropos to speak to the person who wrote up our entire response plan as the school year begins. So Emily will speak to Sally Freeman, who heads up our health center and is the author of that plan.
0: So Sally, when you were working on developing our health and safety plan, what specific guidance documents did you reference and what health authorities have you kept in touch with?
2: We follow recommendations from our governing authorities and that would include Texas Education Agency, as well as our health authorities, such as the Centers for Disease Control and Austin Public Health. So I think one important thing to note is that it was kind of difficult to create this plan because everything was in a constant change there. And even within these three Agencies, sometimes there was variation in their recommendations. Even, for example, what is a fever? Everybody had a different definition of that. There were no number of other entities that we used when developing our plan. We know that we have a very unique population at our school, so we reached out to other blind schools to see what they were doing. We also reviewed and discussed what some of our Texas colleagues were doing, and specifically, that included Austin ISD. Hayes Consolidated, Round Rock, Pflugerville, Plano, and even Burnett. And then, of course, we're always in close collaboration with our colleagues over the Texas School for the Deaf, just to ensure that we're in similar alignment there. This past week, I have spent over three hours in meetings with Austin Public Health, and they are very much aware of the unique needs of our population and the challenges that we have with serving our students. I get a lot of questions
0: about whether or not we'll be providing COVID testing to our staff. And students. So
2: at this time, there are no plans to provide COVID testing to either staff or students. Instead, what we're going to do is recommend that they go and see their primary health care provider and get medical guidance from that person. We know that our staff and our students each have unique medical needs, and their provider is going to know the best way to address those. The other part of this is you have to take in consideration the cost, the availability, the reliability of of the test. And at this point in time, it's just not a feasible solution. Do you know of any
0: schools that are requiring testing or doing testing?
2: I have not heard of any schools at all. I'm not familiar with anybody who's requiring it. If you do start to test, let's say we get tested Friday, you know, do you test once a week every day? And so you can see how that Just could be all the time and kind of, where do you draw the line? It's cost prohibitive and not necessarily reliable. What additional safety
0: precautions will be made for staff working with students that require increased personal contact and can't social distance?
2: We've really worked hard to increase the amount of personal protective equipment that we have on hand at our school there. We have worked on a little chart that we'll be sharing with folks to kind of sh- make recommendations as far as what type of um, personal protective equipment they need to wear depending on where they're working. We know that in many of our situations, they need to be in close contact with our students. Hand hygiene before and after that contact is going to be very important.
0: Will we be training staff on safety protocols
2: specific to COVID? Yes, we are currently working on a COVID-19 bridge module. We will be launching that soon. We want to ensure that we're presenting the most current, up-to-date information. Everything is changing, and so we want to make sure it's current. At this point in time, everybody is busy preparing for the start of the school year. They're completing their other bridge modules. We're hoping to delay this a little bit until right before the students return That way, the information will be fresh in everybody's mind, and they'll be prepared to implement it.
0: Since we sent out the draft only a few days ago, the close contact definitions and symptoms for COVID have already been updated again. Both
2: the symptoms and the close contact, those are ones that seem to kind of evolve and change almost daily. As new information becomes available, they're adding new symptoms. The definition of close contact changes. The parties, when they were together, were they wearing a mask? And if they were wearing a mask, what type of mask were they wearing? What length of time were they together? How close was that proximity? Of course, Austin Public Health is our health authority. The health Center will be working closely with them we well, we be reporting on um, cases that are symptomatic or confirmed. We'll be getting their guidance as far as close contact and what next steps we might need to take.
0: How will we be having staff self-screen before coming into work?
2: For the time being, we're going to keep using the screening tool that our human resources director, Cheryl Williams, sent out. You need to go ahead and check your temperature, make sure you don't have a fever, and if that's the case, then you're fine to come to campus. With that said, And Cheryl and I have had a number of conversations with some vendors that are approved by the Texas Education Agency to see if perhaps we could implement an app that staff would be able to use on the phone. And so what this means is they would be able to pull up the app on their phone, do their screening, and they would have like a green badge that says you're good to go. And it would trigger a message to Cheryl to let her know that, hey, all of our staff completed their screening before they started their work day. So more to come on that one.
0: Yeah, I know we'd all like an easy to use app. So we're all pushing for that one.
2: Yes.
0: <laughs> How are we limiting the amount of people in contact with each other throughout the day?
2: As we are thinking about Our plans for this part of the school year, um, we are really working to keep small groups of students together and can keep it consistent there and not have a lot of variability there. The other thing that we hope to implement is outdoor activity. This will kind of help spread people out, give them a little bit of space. And I know it's really hot right now, but hopefully it'll start to cool down very soon. All meetings should take place virtually, so that could be via a Zoom or a Google platform. Emily, this is just going to take Cooperation and participation from all of us. We're just gonna to have to really be mindful of this. And like even when we go in that break room and we see our favorite colleagues, we've got to be mindful of the number of people in there and just really be aware. Our facilities department is doing some things to put some prompts around campus that are going to help us to remember this too. And that might even be things such as a rough textured, you know, marker or footprint on the floor that could be a prompt to a visually impaired student. So um, a matter of us all working together. I would just say that when we were developing the plan, what was forefront in our minds was the health and the safety of our students and staff. We value each and every one of them and everything that went into the plan was done based on that. Just know that this plan is gonna continue to grow and evolve and change as information becomes available and we'll update it. Thanks for being
0: willing to do this.
2: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Even though we're putting all of this time and effort into safely reopening our schools, we realize that we just can't do it right away. So to highlight what we're doing for remote learning and what we're expanding on in those efforts, Lowell is gonna sit down with Daniel Wheeler who is heading up the remote learning initiatives at TSBBI.
3: This year, TSBBI is gonna be using Google Classroom for our remote learning platform. We are asking that each of our teachers create at least one Google Classroom, but we also recognize our student population is really diverse with widely varying tech skills. So each teacher is going to have a lot of flexibility in terms of making decisions about how best to implement it for the specific needs of their students and family members. For some teachers, it will just be a way to organize and share resources like videos and websites and slide decks and things like that. But for other teachers, it may function more like an actual online classroom, like a means of distributing assignments or facilitating online class announcements and discussions or sharing resources with students electronically.
1: We're sure that the platform is fully accessible?
3: We have used Google Classroom for the last few years in a more limited uh, capacity. Our short-term programs has dabbled with it. We have had some teachers setting it up. We've had a lot of time with it to explore to make sure that it is accessible, and whether you're accessing it through the web or on a mobile device, it's very screen reader friendly. So it works well with JAWS and NVDA, if you're using VoiceOver on iOS, it works great. But it's a mainstream education technology, and and we know that those frequently come with minor accessibility bugs, so it wouldn't surprise us if if, uh, certain things Pop up that we have to work with, but we have a good connection with with Google and their uh, accessibility team, and I'm sure that they'd be willing to work through any any kinks that we encounter. The thing we do like about it is there's a, a fairly quick learning curve compared to some of the more complicated advanced learning management systems that are out there. Uh, so it's it's pretty quick for a teacher to to create a classroom and get some students enrolled or some parents uh, connected. And then begin sharing resources. So we're excited about it.
1: Are the teachers being given any additional training for conducting virtual school?
3: That's one of my big tasks: is is finding ways to, to support our staff and, and help build up their technology skills. And even this summer, I wanted to make sure we didn't let last spring pass without reflecting and learning from that experience, you're thrown into this situation where you have to learn all kinds of new technologies in a really quick manner. It's not my preferred method of, a, of learning new tech skills, but, but it was really fascinating to to see how quickly we all became experts at using Zoom or we adopted some of these collaborative tools like Google Drive, for example. I interviewed seven of our teachers to learn what their experience was like teaching remotely last spring. And again, it was like crisis education <laughs> is what they kept talking about, you know, without having the time to, to plan for it up front. We collected that feedback from the staff and we we learned what worked and what didn't work and we compiled the resources from those teachers that, that worked well for them and then distributed that through a uh, a campus newsletter that went to all of our staff. We really want our staff to learn from each other. I'm definitely not the expert or the one who knows all the answers to all the questions when it comes to technology. I think all of us are, are tech teachers and and learning technology and I like to create opportunities for for collaboration and for us to learn from each other and share from each other. So in that spirit, during our professional development week, we're having a full day dedicated to technology training and preparation for remote learning. We also have time on that day for our staff to team up in small groups and continue brainstorming and reflecting and and coming up with with ideas together. There's not a real clear roadmap for us right now when it comes to pivoting and turning our school into basically an online school in just a, a matter of a few months. You know, it's it's uncharted territory and so. So we want to just maintain a spirit of flexibility and being agile and adapt our approaches, learning from our mistakes and being responsive to the needs of our students and their families. This is an incredibly stressful time, very difficult time. Ultimately, we're here to serve our students and the parents and and family members and make things work for them, even though it's at a distance.
1: So speaking of which, we've got families all over the state from all sorts of different places and backgrounds and capabilities. What are we doing to help the families be better equipped?
3: We've been uh, sending out surveys and, and placing phone calls to gauge their concerns and see what their needs are. Do they need Wi-Fi connectivity? If so, we're prepared to to support them with hotspots if they need it. Even over the summer, we're constantly in in a mode of shipping and receiving technology to students. Um, If technology was broken, we're trying to get it back so we can get it repaired and then shipping replacement technology out. I think the first step is just understanding the need and, and making sure we have open lines of communication with the family members. We want to be able to step in and support them in a timely manner with the devices they need and the connectivity that they need to do this online. learning in addition to that we rolled out a student and family help desk system this is on our public website and students and or family members can go in and if they're encountering any technical issues they can fill out a help desk ticket online and we have a whole technology department here at TSBVI who will try to respond to that need in a very timely manner but really we just want to have open lines of communication between the teachers and the family members and then our technology team to really address their concerns on an individual level they have varying degrees of technology skills and we want to find ways to to help families to know that we're here to help them i think on one hand it's it's nice that families are going to have the um the flexibility to choose wh- what they feel is in the best interest to, uh, of their needs in terms of, you know, in-person instruction or remote instruction. I, I do think that's that's nice that we're giving that option to families. From the teaching side of things, though, it definitely adds an element of complexity. I don't know of too many <laughs> too many institutions or schools that have been able to do this. One of the things that we've done this year is we've completely reconfigured our bell schedule. So. In the past, we had eight periods a day. This next school year, we're, we're moving to a block schedule. So we have four periods a day plus a time of enrichment. Each of those blocks will be a little bit longer than the school periods last year. It'll give teachers flexibility to connect with both their remote students and the students that may be there in person. One model we're looking at is teachers may connect with the remote students for like the first 20 minutes of class, for example, through Zoom, and maybe the TA works with the in-person students to get them started. And then there may be a switch. The classroom teacher will will switch over and work with the in-person students for a little bit. And then the remote students could maybe continue on with their independent activities, or maybe the TA comes over and works with the students through Zoom. We do want to give our teachers some flexibility, though, to be creative and to to work with their students and families and and craft some unique solutions for how they engage remotely. It's probably going to look a little different from teacher to teacher depending on the nature of the class and their students and what their abilities are and what their family's, you know, schedule is like. And again, our goal is to just be responsive and, and hopefully we can we can iron things out and, and start to find some really good models and solutions that we can share with the rest of the staff. We know that certain types of learning just works better, especially for our student population. It works better in person. But when that's not an option or we have limited uh, options, how, how do you Make the best of that situation. In, in interviewing the teachers over the summer, I was personally just impressed with breakthrough moments that they had with their students and family members. And they talked about how some of this new technology, it gave them new levels of insight into the home environments of their students. And it gave them the ability to coach the the students in terms of transferring skills that they've been working on in the classroom, transferring those skills into that home environment. That was really empowering and powerful and and unexpected. I hope that we can continue to, to learn the technologies that allow us to make those connections and empower our students to be more independent and to transfer their skills into their home environments. And I hope that when all this is over with, I hope we don't lose those new skills and new technologies that we gained during this time. We're having to be problem solvers. We're having to be creatives. We're having to use new tools for collaboration and communication. And our, our parents are gaining new skills that they didn't have before. Our staff are gaining new skills that they didn't have before. We don't focus On the the negative of the situation and we're not overwhelmed by the challenge of it. We focus on this as more of an opportunity. Like this is an opportunity to continue growing and continue learning. When this is all done, we're gonna have stronger relationships with each other, with our families, a new set of tools that will help us be even better at our ultimate goal of educating our students and supporting them all across the state. We've been doing our best to to lay plans (laughs) for this very uncertain school year ahead. And I do hope that we all have lots of grace and patience and empathy with each other during this time. Things are Changing daily. That's just—it's the, the nature of a pandemic. And so we—we we just have to be flexible and adaptable, and being understanding of each other and and the, the stresses that we're all dealing with. There's just a lot of uncertainty and a lot of anxiety. And I hope that we can come together and support each other and be positive and encouraging. The only way to get through something like this is to do it together with a strong team and a strong community. We've got some really talented, thoughtful, caring, compassionate people here. All we want is the best for our students, and, and they're going to go above and beyond to make that happen. I think I think we can get through this.
0: As an educational leader of a public school, my primary goal is to meet the educational needs of our students, and we need them to be able to access our campus to make that happen. We know that there's been a regression of learning across all populations and demographics, but obviously that's really prevalent in special education and that is not lost on me but for now we know that we can't just bring kids back until it's safe and so safety has to come first. As a person who thrives on decisive action and confidence and making plans, I am personally having to adapt to sort of this new normal that I think we're all finding ourselves within. And so I really love Daniel's comments today about having a positive mindset and embracing creativity and opportunities to continue learning because it's so easy to be stressed out and frustrated, but we can all find like those little pieces of light and the way that we are making bigger connections and giving grace to each other and finding community through an online environment. I think we just have to keep striving to help each other out and sort of up our game to the next level. From the TSBVI Outreach Department and A of Texas, I'm Emily Coleman. See you next time.
1: This has been a presentation of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Outreach Department. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics to cover in future episodes, please contact us at podcast at tsbvi.edu.